blessing. Thank you. And thank you for your prayers, Andrew. Uh, that's a good prayer to have, isn't it? We don't want to hear from the speaker. We want to hear from the Lord. And that can bring forth that thoughts of pride pretty easily. That's why it's good to look in the mirror and be reminded of who we are when we look at our body, but then also to think of who we are going to be when we consider the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, we're being conformed to his image, and one day, we will receive that glorified body. I didn't mention during the breaking of bread service the results of the preaching team this weekend. There, there were no meetings on Friday night. Uh, everybody was involved in ministries at their own churches or those of their family, and that was true for us. We got to uh, go see a Christmas program and learn that our eldest daughter, who's a pretty good singer, I had no idea. I had no idea. I, I'm her father, and I know you think that this would be prone to exaggerate, but it was incredible. I'm not sure what happened last night at Redondo Beach with the team, but we know that our labors for the Lord are never in vain. So again, as always, thank you for your prayers on behalf of the, the team preaching. Uh, this morning at the home uh, for the breaking of bread, uh, one of the brothers called out a hymn, Meeting in the Savior's Name. And we sang, Jesus died and then arose. Yes, he rose. He lives to reign. He will vanquish all his foes when to earth he comes again. We also sang, sing we then of him who died, sing of him who rose again. By his blood we're justified, and with him we hope to reign. We're going to continue to look at the letter to the Hebrews, and you know, we started out by quoting, the just shall live by faith last time. That ties this book together with Romans and Galatians. The two treatises of the book perhaps are Romans, speaking to the salvation of mankind, and the letter to the Hebrews, a treatise on what a Christian life should be in running the race. We, we kind of left with that thought last week, how are you running the race? We're going to give some more thoughts to that. We looked last time at a, a quotation um, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, and, and he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now, without a, a grounding in Scripture, we might be afraid of that, being judged by the Lord. You know, but in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that glorious chapter that opens with, again, that promise that one day we're going to have this body eternal in the heavens, not made by human hands. We've read the end of the book. We've heard the promises of the future. Thereby, we have this joy and peace. And as I gathered thoughts this week on, on, on putting together a message for this morning, I ended up with, again, not getting into the meat of Hebrews, other than a passing reference here, we're going to spend time checking the foundation. You know, it's customary after you have an earthquake, you, you inspect the building and you look at the foundation to see if there's damage. 
A wise person looks at the foundation before a danger and makes sure that it's in good shape. So this introduction to the letter of the Hebrews may be the longest introduction we've ever had here for a Bible study, but we're going to look, starting at the very beginning, we're going to approach this as if a brand new believer who has very little knowledge, we're going to cover the foundational items and move straight on through so that it makes sense, uh, to make it uh, easy to understand. You know, I've mentioned before that every one of us always brings our preconceptions to everything in this life that we do. So it's important to have good preconceptions that are based in truth. You know, a wise person is going to continually look at what their thoughts and what their life patterns are and even what their beliefs are to make sure they're correct. But if we're going to do that, we have to have a source that is pure and true and infallible. And that's what we have in Scripture. The challenge is to be flexible enough to change when needed, yet be solid enough to, to not be blown about by the winds of change. We have enough problems struggling with the flesh, let alone that we're also being assailed by Satan and his minion to sweep us into error, to, to destroy our lives, to make us ineffectual in living for Christ. And that's really what the message of the letter to the Hebrews is all about, running that race well. And we're reminded that, that Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you know, he's building on a foundation, the only foundation that any man can ever lay, and that's upon Christ Jesus. If it's not built on Christ, it's not going to last. Everything in this world is going to burn up except for the Word of God. That's going to live forever. And what's going to exist forever in addition? That's a human soul. Everything else is worthless, so we've got to build on Christ. Uh, we finished our last session again on the letter to the Hebrews, or this introduction to it, with the, perhaps the penultimate question. It, that's a fancy word. I used to think that meant the ultimate, ultimate question, but it doesn't. What it actually means, it's the, maybe the second to the last most important question. And that was, how are you running the race? When in fact, the ultimate question is, how does God think you're running the race? That should be the ultimate question for us. And this letter to the Hebrews is written as much to us as it was to the Hebrews of the first century who were believers. So considering our slow and careful approach to this study, it's uh, far better to be careful to build a strong, large, and precise foundation followed perhaps by a quicker, smaller, less precise structure than the other way around. If you have a poor structure on a, on a good foundation, it's easy to replace or renovate it. But if you've got a, even a good structure on a bad foundation, the whole thing's going to come down. It, Hebrews is a complex book. It, it's meant to be digested by those who have a good foundation, um, which is built up on a solid understanding of essential scriptural truth. Anyone who is building their belief structure uh, through the study of Scripture, we're doing a good thing. But if at the same time, through misunderstanding, we hold the doctrinal errors, the structure we build is going to be spiritually flawed. It's not likely to stand when the trials come, when it's tested, when it's needed. You may get a partial comfort, but 
Knowing the truth of God is what sets us free. Hebrews is touted as a difficult book. It's called the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. Therefore, it's also the most misunderstood. There are many erroneous teachings which arise out of misinterpretation of what Hebrews says to us. And it's true of a lot of other scripture as well, but Hebrews being deeper, being meat, is harder to digest. Many of the misunderstandings arise over what appear to be contradictions in the text of Hebrews in contrast to some of the passages elsewhere in the Bible where Hebrews gives rise to this thought that you can lose your salvation. What are all these warnings? It can be a fearsome book to read. Now, it, there should be some godly fear when we read the letter to the Hebrews to help propel us to win the race. You know, I told you last time that story. I like that story because I like the main character, uh, how I ran a marathon. I finished well, but I didn't run the race well. I could have done a lot better. Than, I'm, again, I'm, I'm happy. Three hours and 38 minutes is not a, a terrible time for a marathon, but I should have beat that by at least an hour. And as well as I picked up the pace and finished the race, it's good to finish the race strong. You want to run the race strong the entire distance, not just the last few steps. You know, Scripture is explicit. We cannot earn salvation by works either before or as some Christians would think, even after salvation, you've got to maintain it. Now, the understanding that eternal glorification occurs at the moment of justification also forever destroys the mistaken beliefs that we must maintain our salvation through obedience afterwards. You know, those thoughts are utterly rejected by Scripture. Um, you know, we read that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, of course, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace, that undeserved favor, that merit which is given to us though we don't deserve it by a loving God. Paul would write to Titus, it's not, it's not by any works of righteousness that we have done, but it's by his mercy that he saved us. And that's a truth that we don't want to turn loose of. Because if we start to try to carry some of the burden of our salvation, not only are we, are, are we insulting the living God, but we're carrying a burden we were never meant and never equipped to carry. We'll weary, our, weary ourselves out by carrying a burden we can't carry anyways. You know, Paul would say to the uh, Colossians in Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgive us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, that took place 2,000 years ago. That business is done and finished. Our Savior is in heaven. Paul would go on to say in the next chapter, we kind of mentioned a little bit this morning in the, in the breaking of bread, you know, 
We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's a declaratory statement. And all this is nailing down for us this truth of eternal security. But since Scripture also gives us the truth that it's appointed unto mankind once to die and then the judgment, it is therefore also impossible that we must or might suffer in purgatory in order to be purified enough to enter heaven. That error is not found anywhere in Scripture, not even in the apocryphal books that, that some would look to, to Maccabees. No, you can find purgatory, but you have to go back to the ancient Babylonian religion to find it. No, Scripture makes it clear. When we leave this life, when we pass through the, that threshold into the afterlife, wherever we end up, it's an irrevocable assignment to that location based on the choices we make. All the troubles we could avoid if we just cling to this truth that we do not obtain salvation by merit, therefore we cannot lose salvation by demerit. Remember that phrase. We're going we're to repeat it a couple times this morning. There's other difficult passages in the Bible. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul would write, if, if we die with Christ, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Yet if we are faithless, he himself remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Again, just reading that on the surface and not looking to any other scripture, we might be concerned. I'm not saying we should take it lightly, but if we understand that salvation is not by any righteous works of our own doing, that it's by the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can look at a verse and go, I'm not exactly sure what it's talking about, but it's not matters of salvation. And then we can dig in with confidence and, and discover what is it really saying? What is the purpose of this, this scripture? I said we, we don't want to get too comfortable reading a, a passage like that in 2 Timothy because if you look at that in there, four times Paul says, if we, if we die with Christ, if we endure, we'll reign with Christ. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, Paul includes himself. That is a passage by a believer, about believers, for believers. You know, Paul wrote that to Timothy to motivate him and, and others, us, uh, to not deny. He wants us to endure and to not deny. And if you want the ultra-condensed version, the truth that is contained within the book of Hebrews, that's really it, those two thoughts. Do not deny, endure and reign. If you endure, you'll reign. If that's all you get out of the letter to the Hebrews, you're already richly uh, prepared uh, to live this life. Uh, there's many more blessings in there. We turn there during the worship service because there are such glorious pictures of, of Christ and his work. They're there for a reason, to juxtapose the worthiness of Christ and his glory against our humble state and yet to motivate us, to provoke us unto love and good deeds. 
you know, arguably the greatest reason for misunderstanding by believers, regardless the, the name on the door, is the failure to differentiate between scriptures which speak to salvation and scriptures which speaks to rewards or loss of rewards. And if we fail to employ fund, uh, you know, these foundational doctrinal truths about salvation, about works, about rewards, about loss, um, and eternal security, we're, we're very likely to read into Scripture things that aren't there. And then that causes us to, through that lens, to interpret other Scriptures in, inappropriately. You know, it gives us a distorted image, a view, an understanding of who God is. And, and that doesn't just allow doctrinal errors to enter. It, it pretty much ensures it. You know, God is perfect. And, and every one of his attributes is in perfect balance with each other. You know, God's love will never be trod upon by his sovereignty or his justice. And, and his justice will never be bullied by his sovereignty or his love. God is able to let us choose whether or not to accept his gift of life. And if we reject his gift, he, he can still administer just punishment whilst still continuing to love us deeply and grieving over our, our choice. Divisive errors such as Calvinism and Arminianism, universalism, they exist because men have chosen to build foundations far too small to support the whole counsel of God. And if you let all the truths of God rest upon one small attribute of God, <laughs> there's no hope of you not having serious error. You know, Calvinism can only exist because that group has made sovereignty of God their full foundation. This allows them to ignore the equal application of God's love and justice to all mankind. Their erroneous belief mandates that they reinterpret Scripture when it conflicts with their perception about the sovereignty. And I'm using a very broad brush here. I've got a lot of brothers in, that, that hold the Calvinist doctrine. I love them. They love the Lord. The Lord is using them greatly. But they're missing out on so much. And they give reason to blaspheme the name of God that he would choose who goes to hell and who gets saved. If we use intellectual honesty at the far end, the Calvinist doctrine demands that God is the author of sin. And I know there's, most Calvinists aren't five-pointers, but you really can't have one without all five of them, at least in the way that a, a, the Calvinist would be defined by, again, intellectual honesty. They've got a lot of great truths. And if we look at it, who have been the greatest evangelists down through the ages? Most of the ones we can think of have been Calvinists. Yet it makes no sense if they believe that God has already chosen who's going to heaven. The Armenian position is equally wrong, and they make the exact same mistake. They just, instead of choosing sovereignty, they choose justice, and they make it supreme over all his other attributes. And, and their error would make salvation, or at least the maintenance of salvation, um, to be a matter of human works. Now, they might claim that's, that's not a work. Well, no, righteous living is a work. Titus tells us that. No, it was Christ's ability to live that righteous life without sin of his own. 
That's what qualified him to be our Savior. And there's none of us in the flesh that can make that claim. Uh, they would deny that uh, Christ's cry, uh, Tetelestai, it is finished, means it is finished. But that's exactly what, what Jesus meant. It is finished. As I said, there's many dear brothers and sisters within both of those groups who are dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And we love them. And I hope we, we receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I hope you'll receive me in spite of some errors in doctrine that I might have. And pray for one another. That We pray that they'll be successful, that the Lord will use them, bless them, and and bring many souls to salvation through their, their works. But we don't want to grab onto anybody's errors. We want to rightly divide the word of truth and push away from these things that might mislead us because we're going to miss much of what is in the whole counsel of God if we're clinging to preconceptions which prevent us from seeing the truth. Uh, the universalists, um, sadly, there, there are, I don't think... Unless somebody is saved before they become a universalist, I don't think it's possible for a universalist to get saved. They don't, they don't think, because the love of God is their entire foundation, um, they just say logically to them, well, a loving God's not going to send anybody to hell, so nobody goes to hell. Well, there's no need for repentance or to seek for a savior. So a person who is a universalist has no reason to look for Jesus or to beg for forgiveness because everybody's going to heaven in their, their opinion. You know, that universalist position does make me wonder if they don't believe God about hell, why do they believe him about heaven? Well, what are the foundational truths? Again, this is going to be very elementary things. And in going through these things about the difficulty of understanding Hebrews, I'm not trying to insinuate that you're not mature enough to handle it. But as I said from the beginning, it seems that like the Lord has laid it on my heart. I want to put this together in an organized fashion which lays out all the foundational doctrinal truths so that as we march through Hebrews, we can discern between what is speaking about salvation, what is speaking about works. Our foundational truths can be summed up in, in Scripture. Of course, that's the only thing that matters. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're told in Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You might read that while we were yet the enemy, Christ died for us. We were numbered amongst the rebels, the rebellious ones. Joel 2.32, which Paul quotes in Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As God said in Deuteronomy 4.29, when you search me with all your heart and soul, you'll find me. He's not trying to hide from anybody. You call out to the Lord, he's going to send somebody to minister, to provide the gospel. Uh, that verse you've heard me cover so many times, this is one that I, I just can't imagine going through the Christian life without clinging to this. Whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he has also glorified. Written in the past tense, if you've ever been 
saved, if you've been declared just by the living God, at that moment you become glorified, which is that future tense of salvation as we look towards heaven. God, it's a, God already sees us in heaven. It's a perfect, completed act which cannot be undone. That foundation sweeps away all the many errors and doubts that, that arise in our life as, the, as Satan attempts to trip us up, to accuse us when we stumble of saying, God can't love you. You're not saved. But if you come to the point of accepting Christ as Savior, that verse, again, that's a promise from God. I might break my promise, but God never breaks his. The love of God is what has compelled him to reach out in love and provide this incredible gift of life to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God said not his son into the world to condemn the world but that through the, the world through him might be saved. You know, except for the universalists, we're in agreement with most evangelical Christians about many of these facts. All mankind, mankind is stained by sin. And a universalist might believe that, but he doesn't believe it means we're going to hell. But all mankind is stained by sin, and we're all destined for hell from the moment we're born. Without our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have no hope. He is God incarnate. Jesus lived that perfect, sinless life, owing no debt for any sin of his own. Yet in spite of that, though Jesus was innocent, he died on the cross bearing our sins and paying the full penalty. It is finished. The debt is canceled. Our sins are forgiven. God says, I choose to remember your sins no more. What a blessed thought. Jesus rose from the grave victorious, proving he has mastery over death, that he can give this gift of life to us. And we're told through his scripture that one day we'll see him as he is because we shall be like him. Hallelujah. I don't want to spend all eternity in this broken down old body I've got. I'm grateful for the, what the Lord has given me. But it's the worst for wear. A lot of it's self-induced. I had help from others for some of it, but I'll be glad to turn it in and get a new one. You know, and all true Christians, we've got to agree that our salvation is entirely a result of the finished work of Christ alone, and then accept that it was the shedding of his innocent blood which has paid the debt, which has canceled the debt which was hostile against us. When we acknowledge our guilt and accept God's gift to us through Jesus Christ, we're instantly saved. We're born again. Uh, even if we don't fully understand the complexities of Scripture. You know, I like, what, again, what J. Vernon McGee used to say. When it comes to salvation, God made it simple. He put the cookie jar on the bottom shelf so even the children could get it. The children might be able to get at that cookie jar on the bottom shelf, but even children can understand this concept of forgiveness. Then let's remember, eternal life is eternal. If you're born again, you can't be unborn. Hallelujah to that. And maybe you should repeat after me again. 
we don't obtain salvation by merit, we cannot lose salvation by demerit. Praise God that it's him holding on to me rather than me holding on to him. It's his grace. Again, grace being that undeserved favor. I'm getting blessings I don't deserve. No, it's his favor God gives to me that ensures I go to heaven in spite of the fact that I still stumble, fall, and even at my very best, I come up short. You know, Mark Twain talked about favor, the favor of God. He equipped Heaven goes by favor. If it were by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. And um, he understood the idea of favor. Right? You know, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, of course, his real name was actually, I don't know if he was saved or not. He obviously had a correct understanding that grace is the favor of God. And it was the grace of God which determined who went into heaven. Again, if we hold tightly to these truths of eternal security, um, and that it's based upon the finished work of Christ. Anytime we see works involved, we can understand that it's not about salvation. It's something other than our justification. And when we're confronted with a puzzling passage, one of the key things we need to ask is, who's it being written to? You know, a lot of the other things are important, what is purpose and all that, but if you understand who it's being written to, it, it really gives you a key. If it's to unbelievers, well, it's going to be a message of salvation regeneration, the new birth. If it's a believer and it has anything to do with works, it cannot possibly be about justification, about our eternal salvation. You know, last time we talked sort of at length about uh, the recipients of the letter uh, being saved. They, there's plenty of evidence uh, but the inclusive statements of the blessed writer himself, I think, are sufficient to prove to us that the recipients of the letter were saved. I really don't know any, um, I'm sure there's some exist, I'm not aware of any commentators who view it as being written to any unbelievers. There may be messages in there for them. But it seems the entire book is written, again, with the goal of encouraging those who are just and shall live and they're instructed in this book to live by faith. So again, we know that um, the consequences for disobedience and faithlessness amongst unbelievers uh, cannot be a loss of salvation but a loss of rewards. That's taught to us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3. You know, we read there in that passage about building on the foundation of Christ as we talked about. We're told if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now it's explicit there. Even the most disobedient, lazy servant is already saved and will enter heaven, but without reward, for it went to the obedient. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, we discussed this last time also, and we'll mention it again. Um, in that passage, it begins with that idea of getting this heavenly-made building that we're going to dwell in, our, our, our glorified body. Paul goes on to talk about um, God has made us with a purpose, and he sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a pledge. And he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. 
for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Again, the passage is clearly written to believers. Paul is including himself in there. What does it mean when we're going to receive recompense for our deeds, be they good or be they bad? Again, that they're written to believers, these, both these passages, it's irrefutable by the testimony of the statements themselves. And in the first, we have this picture of a soul who has all his works burned up. He's still saved. And in the second, the dear apostle is including himself, even as he did in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In the first passage, it's explicitly stated that even a believer whose entire life produces no good work which can survive the test of fire by Christ at the judgment seat, that soul will still enter into heaven. That truth, you know, all by itself completely destroys both Calvinism and Arminianism. They're, they're called polar opposites. They're actually a lot more alike than they are different. It is the life of the believer that gives evidence whether somebody is saved or not. The second passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it's, it's not clear what the rewards of what it means receiving recompense for goods, be they, or for works, be they good or evil. But when we take Scripture as a whole, we can understand, of course, that it's not an issue of salvation. Again, it's works. So we're comforted as we read that, but then we should be discomforted to consider, okay, what is the purpose and again, it's to encourage, to stimulate, to provoke us unto love and good deeds. What does Christ say about it? Let's consider uh, briefly um, two parables. Uh, Matthew 25. Uh, we'll, we'll spend just a, a few minutes looking at the parable of the talents. And then we'll go to the companion passage in Luke 19. Same parable. As we understand it, told three days apart. But it's the same parable, some minor little differences, but uh, very instructive uh, for us. In Matthew 25, uh, we have the story of a man who is about to go on a journey. And we're told, starting with verse 14, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each one according to his own ability. What abilities do human beings have? If you're not saved when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, distant, far off, without hope, without God, we don't have any abilities. You know, Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's Poema, we are God's creation created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So he gives these talents each to his own ability. He went on his journey and um, it tells us how they, they went about and um, the one with five and the one with two, they, they gained, they doubled what the master had given them, but the one who had received the one went away, dug a hole and buried it. The master comes back and, and judges them and 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant to the first two. But the one who buried his talent, what does he say in verse 24? And the one who also received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and upon my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the tablet from him, or the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a troubling passage. What does it mean to be thrown into the darkness outside? Let's turn over to Luke chapter 19 and look at the parable of money usage. Again, these, as we understand it, these parables were told three days apart. They went outside of Jericho and one at the entrance to Jerusalem. It's clearly the, the same parable, the same thoughts, the same setup. We get some additional, slightly different details. Starting in verse 11 of the 19th chapter of Luke, we read, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because... He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That sort of sets the context for us. So he said, a, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Obviously, we look at that and see, well, this is a picture of Christ going to heaven, and he's going to get, receive a kingdom in return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens, now it doesn't say his slaves, it says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. What business they had done while he was away before he returned. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little. In this very little thing you are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Master, your mina, master has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an, an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man? taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? 
then why did you not put my, mina, my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Well, there's quite a picture there for us. If we do anything from the Lord, we're going to receive more. But how does it finish? But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now, now I know it's common, and I've, we've, I've discussed this with you before, it's common to equate these servants with, with just mankind. Some are believers and some aren't. But the parables themselves seem to refute that thought. Firstly, it's, it's completely inconsistent that there are servants of the living God who aren't believers. It is true, God will use the wrath of man to bring glory to his name. He can use a wicked priest uh, like Caiaphas to prophesy. He can speak through a donkey. Doesn't make any of them one of his children. Secondly, the position of the believers, it really is clear in Luke's account. Those who reject the master will die. The, the servants did not reject him as master, even the one who did nothing for the master. But the ultimate truth is this. If these parables are really about salvation, then the picture here is that salvation is by works of the individual. That's not possible according to the other scriptures we looked at, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Titus 3, 5. No, it is clearly those who reject Christ as their master that will die. The slothful servant loses reward, not life. It is clearly faithful servants who are about their master's work that inherit rewards and rule with him and reign. And just as clearly the unfaithful servant loses their rewards, do not rule, are thrust out into darkness outside. You might ask, what does that mean? The verse isn't clear. That's part of why there's so many diverse opinions by dear, wonderfully mature believers in Christ, teachers of the word. But in light of the, the story of the, of the nobleman and the kingdom and receiving, I don't teach this as doctrine. My own personal belief is, is those servants who've been slothful, they're servants. They're like the one who all their works have burned up, yet they themselves are saved. They're going to be on the outside during the millennial reign of Christ. They're not going to rule. They're not going to reign with Christ during the kingdom. They're going to be in the presence of God in the glory of heaven. As the psalmist said, Thou hast shown me the pathways of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I just think they're on the sidelines, on the bench, during the millennial reign of Christ. You know, we're going to see when we get into Hebrews that there's a really a, a clear parallel picture with the Israelites who fell in the wilderness, including Moses. You know, Lord willing, we're going to cover that in detail when we get there, but we surely expect to see Moses in heaven, don't we? I think all those that fell in the wilderness, they were saved in the picture. They saved as 
by through the blood of the Lamb. They passed through the waters. Yes, they wandered in the wilderness and they had unbelief. That's why they fell in the wilderness. I don't think it's at all a picture of the loss of salvation. No, it's the unbeliever who has much to worry about and we don't want to be a slothful servant, but nobody should want to be an unbeliever. The consequences are horrific, eternally tragic. Again, we ought to have a broken heart for the lost all the time. When we don't have a broken heart for the lost, we don't have the mind of Christ about us at that time. In summary, again, just to review the, the foundational truths that include all we need to rightly divide the word of truth when we get digging into Hebrews, and it's that, again, we don't obtain salvation by merit. We can't lose it by demerit. If you've ever been justified, you've already also been glorified. Faithful servants receive rewards and become rulers for and with the master. Unfaithful servants receive no rewards, do not rule, are thrust out, but do not die. Anyone who refuses to receive Christ as their master will be put to death. Those two thoughts of Paul to Timothy, do not deny, but rather endure with Christ and reign. With all this as a truth, as an established foundation, we're equipped to dig into the meat of Hebrews and to fully, or at least come closer to fully digesting all that the Master has to tell us in this glorious book. The just of Romans shall live in Galatians. How shall we live? We should live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please the living God. Perhaps there's somebody here today that's not in that race. You know, I ask that question, how are you running the race? And if you're not a believer, you're not in the race. As I've said before, we tend to look at it this way, but it's not true. Salvation is not the finish line. That's the starting line. The moment you're saved, you're qualified to enter the race. And if you're in the race, how are you running it? Are you running to be pleasing to the master from the very beginning? And if you're not saved, you're not in the race. You're without hope and without God. You're separate from him if you're without Christ. If there's somebody here this morning that that's your condition, let's talk after the meeting. You know, we don't twist arms. We don't get brownie points for signing anybody up. Everybody here today who's a child of the living God at some point had to confess and admit, I'm a sinner. I don't even know where heaven is. How can I hope to get myself in there? Let one of us talk to you this morning and let you know that you too might come to know who the light of the world is who the Prince of Peace is, who the Saver of souls and Redeemer of mankind is, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May his name be glorified in all that we do this week. And as we enter this holiday season, remember, this is the time when we have more open doors. Let's take advantage of every single one of them. Heavenly Father, we bow before you again in worship and praise that you would cast your eye toward us. What is man that you were? You would consider us. Us lowly worms, rebels, foolishly chasing after our own lusts and desires and the things of this earth, not even recognizing often our position. And yet in your great love, you sent your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might become our sin in our place and pay the penalty we owe in order that we might be forever forgiven by the fact that he has paid for our sins. He has canceled that debt. Help us as we go through this week to live lives which point to him, which point to you, which reflect your glory into this dark and dying world. Help us to run the race with endurance. Help us to finish well. We would show our love for the master by being joyful and productive servants of the living God. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.